Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Church Sermons Podcast. Enjoy the sermon by Pastor Jason. Sovereign Grace Church is a Bible-based, gospel-centered church. Please enjoy. I think uh, something that, that we need to say about today's text is I think sometimes if we're not careful with God's Word and how we handle it, we may kind of just skip over portions as if it's uh, just a small piece of a story or perhaps it's a narrative of just some unimportant events that help us to kind of keep time with what was going on at the time. Um, but I think we always need to slow down. Um, we need to ask ourselves, certainly, we need to ask ourselves this, not... What does it mean to me? We don't need to ask ourselves, what does this scripture mean to me? We need to ask ourselves what it means. And what is God trying to say through this passage of scripture? The text that we have today could seem unimportant if we don't slow down. But we must dig into this because there's some very important precepts and, and, and thoughts and, and, and ideas in this. Uh, there are depths here, and there is something extremely important that we can see if we can just stop and look a little deeper at this passage. Not to mention, there are things that we can just we can use to apply to our lives, if and it can help us grow in Christ. Just as all Scripture is useful for doing that, to help us grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, let's get to the text. Now hear the infallible, inspired Word of God, John 7, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word that it is infallible, inerrant, and inspired. God, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand what you have to say here. Holy Spirit, illuminate this path. 
Remove the veil that we may see Christ clearly revealed to us and what he has to say to us through this text. God, we honor you and thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it in our hands and we can use it. And we thank you that it is understandable in Christ's name. Amen. This verse, this set of verses can seem insignificant compared to what we've been been in. I mean, we've just been in one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, John 6, to me. I, it is one of the greatest chapters that I've ever preached. And what is happening here can seem insignificant. But we got to look at what is happening and the implications of what is happening. There are three things that have an impact on this text and the message of Christ. And it leaves us with some very important points of application. I want to go into each important point and develop kind of a firm understanding with the help of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we can all grasp what we're reading here and understand how important it is. First, let's look at Jesus' interaction with his brothers somewhat more in depth here. Verses 3 and 4 say, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers desperately wanted to have Jesus reveal himself to everybody. They wanted him to be the savior that they wanted him to be. They wanted him to be the conquering hero. And as you, if you know anything about Jewish history and, and Jewish idea of Messiah, the thing that they wanted more than anything was a conquering hero to kick out the Romans. That's what they wanted. Well, Jesus did not come for that. He makes that clear in verse 8. He says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now, he goes to the feast in a much different way than what they wanted. They wanted him to come in like gangbusters. They wanted him to come in zapping, zapping folks and raising the dead and doing all these crazy things, announcing he's the Messiah. But it says that, but after this, in verse 10, he says, but after this, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went, but not publicly, in private. There's an essential truth that we can see here. You see, he doesn't cave to what others think may be the right thing for him to do. We can see that clearly of, because of the message that he's preaching. It says that he's testifying that the works of the people of the world are evil. So he's not following these certain sets of standards that people have for him as to how to be the best Messiah that, that could be. He, does, he's, he hasn't read that book, 100 Ways to Be the Best Messiah Ever. He is doing what he is doing in a very specific and meaningful way, and it doesn't have any bearing what others think he should do. John six thirty eight. we just preached this a, couple week, a few weeks ago. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus did everything in the way that it was willed to be done. He took joy in doing the will of the Father here on earth. He needed no affirmation from other people. 
And he didn't need any acceptance from his earthly half-brothers who, who have just told him, hey, look, you need to go up there. You need to announce yourself. You need to get... You need to get a, you know, get a coalition of people following you. You know, you need to grow your ministry. He didn't need that. He was about his father's business, just as he had said when he was 12 years old and was in the temple. He was about his father's business. That is such an important aspect of who our Savior is. You see that in the person of Jesus, that perfect obedience to the will of the Father was on display all the time. He was always doing the perfect will of the Father. Jesus is actually, if, if we would grasp this, I think it's an important point. Jesus is always the clearest example of the sovereignty of God on display. He is always the perfect example of God's sovereignty. He prayed in a certain way in the will of the Father. He, he gave it as the model prayer. Thy will be done. He, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will. So he is always praying in the Father's will, which exalts the Father, exalts God, as the one whose will is to be done. He did nothing outside of the Father's will. He didn't take a step outside of the Father's will. He completed the greatest plan ever devised, which was the will of God before the foundation of the world. He fulfilled the plan to save his elect and he completed that plan because he went of his own will to the cross because he laid aside all things with the will of God to be done to redeem a people what lesson may we learn from our savior on the need to depend on and take joy in the sovereignty of God we could learn the most amazing lesson if we'll listen to that fact that Christ always depended upon the will of God. He never did anything outside of it, and he took great joy in doing the will of God. So when we face things that are difficult, when we go through things that are, that are hard, we know that we can depend upon the sovereignty of God I love what Spurgeon says, that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian can lay their head at night in peace. Now, from that interaction with us, brothers, we see something else that we need to discuss, and we're going to dig here. We're going we're gonna to dig our heels in, and we're going to see this very important aspect of what happens here. Verse 5 says something very poignant. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now these are his brothers. They did not believe in him. This is not just regular old brothers. This is flesh and blood half-brothers. They have the same mother. Regardless of what people teach about the perpetual virginity of Mary, it says that she knew her husband and she had brothers for Jesus. And she had sisters for Jesus too, according to Scripture. 
You see, they had been with him his entire life. They had seen all the things that he could do, and they did not believe him. Now, in their defense, these same men, many of them would go on to be heroes of the faith. James, his brother, actually wrote an epistle, the epistle of James in, in the scripture. But at this moment, unbelief is the glaring thing. I want to read to you a, a quote from Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, on unbelief. So that we can understand what, what is happening here. Unbelief hardens the heart. These two sins are linked together. He upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. Unbelief breeds the stone of the heart. He that believes not God's threatenings will never fear him. He that believes not God's promises will never love him. So we see in his brothers a perfect example of unbelief. And Jesus honestly seems to encounter unbelief constantly in his ministry. We see it in today's world as well, right? I think we could look at some unbelief in our culture today and in actually some unbelief in the modern visible church, and we can learn some stuff. There is, of course, the classic example of the unbeliever, right? We know from Jesus' own teaching that there are many who will not and truthfully cannot believe. They will not believe or be swayed by anything that they see or anything that's said. Uh, Brother Garrett, he recently taught us a series on atheism, which is another type of belief, or what I would term, actually, I don't term it atheism, I term it God-hating. They say they believe in science and things that can be proven, and they deny all historical evidence of Christ. You see, they say they believe science and facts and cannot believe historical facts. And then we also see another type of unbelief that's kind of getting a lot more prevalent now and is actually being uh, more shown to us than any other type of unbelief we've seen in any time in history, and that's the belief in false religions. Uh, they believe in something, something that is not real, something that may make them feel like a better person. It may lead them to enlightenment or nirvana or to great rewards from Allah or to be made clear. If you know anything about Scientology, they seek something to believe in, but not Christ. For whatever reason, they want to be saved by something different. And if you look at it very clearly, most of the time those who want to, don't want to be saved by Christ go to religions that teach them you have to do this too. And if you do this, then you can be saved. So what does it all point us to? All points them back to themselves. Then we see a couple more types of unbelievers that are much more difficult to deal with. These unbelievers are the ones that we see in the visible church. 
The first is the practical atheist. You talked you talk about that, Brother Garrett. They go to church, they say they're Christians, and yet everything about their lives and their theology and their ideas and their everything about it points to a denial of all that is Christ. They claim Christianity and de- deny all the truth of Scripture. They don't believe that it's infallible, inspired, and inerrant. They don't believe that it has authority over any part of life. They get rid of anything supernatural or unexplainable in Scripture and try to explain it away. They believe that the world's systems and ideals should have some kind of say over the church. They are a dangerous type of unbeliever that has a very loud voice in many modern churches. The next type is even more dangerous, especially to themselves. They are the type that say that they believe in Jesus, but there is a little caveat in their belief. They believe in their Jesus. Their Jesus who loves and accepts everyone just as they are, and, and they, he requires nothing of them. A crossless Christ, one that did not bear the wrath of sin, but just died because he was so nice. One that is not the one who flipped tables and preached the Sermon on the Mount. That said, even if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you're committing adultery. Even if you hate your brother in your heart, you're committing murder. He helped people realize how awesome they are. He thought we were so awesome, he just had to come on down. And make it so we can go up there with him. A Jesus who is just like me. Make no mistake. God is love. And he did love us enough to send his son, but he does require something of us. Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says it clearly. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I believe that we are given a clue as to why people do not believe in this scripture. One of them is just like Jesus said. He said, It hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And there's another clue that we're going to begin to dig into, and that's the next point that we're going to discuss. What is the root of unbelief in Christ? Let's look at what the people reacted like at the feast. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. The Jews looking for him at the feast were look, looking were looking for him at the feast and saying, "Where is he?" And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, "He is a good man," others said, "No, he is leading people astray." Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The Jews hated him. They literally wanted to kill him. 
Some thought he was a good dude. Others thought he was a liar. Most all feared the Jews so much that they wouldn't even talk about him. The man who preached the new birth and did great wonders and they wouldn't even talk about him. Why? Because they feared men. Fear of man will lead to all types of unbelief and deception. We must fear God and not man. I believe uh, Ryle made a, a good point as well about unbelief. In 1 Kings 22.8, we kind of see some unbelief on display. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. He hated him. The king hated this, this prophet because he wanted to hear good things about himself. Men hate the truth because we just want to hear good stuff about us. We want to hear that we're a good person. We don't want to be confronted about evil. We don't want to hear about our own evil and our own sinful ways. You see, we like the good stuff. To see Christ clearly and believe that he has said what he has said is to be confronted with our own depravity, our own evil, and our inability without a doubt to save ourselves. Paul explained it clearly in Romans. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Because of our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth, the very truth that would lead us to repentance. We are all without excuse. We want to hear the good news. We want to hear that we're all good people. We're all okay. No problems here, nothing to see here. We're all good. God really likes us. He's got our picture on his, on his, on his refrigerator. But there's one problem with that thought of man, and that's this. We're not good. We're okay. We need help. We need help. We need a Savior. We need something outside of ourselves. We need a perfect sacrifice. We need an atonement. The root of unbelief is a denial of this fact, which we all truly do know that we need Christ. Not our Christ, the biblical Christ. 
And that brings me to our points of application. First, we must begin with a question. And that's this. Do you love the biblical Christ? If you don't love the biblical Christ as he is revealed in scripture, you do not believe in the right Christ. You do not follow the correct Lord. And we come to know the real Christ through the truth of his word. Know him, the Christ of scripture. Believe in him, the Christ of scripture. Now, I would also give you some exhortations based on that. We need to know, first of all, that what Scripture says of God is absolute truth. I know many don't think that there's any such thing as absolute truth, that truth is relative. That's not true. The idea of truth itself says that it is absolute. Science, as we see the atheists call upon so often, if it seems to disagree with the Bible, then it is science that is wrong. And science must be brought into subjection to God. Second of all, do not be swayed by false doctrines. Fake religions are lying world systems. All of these seem to point us back to ourselves. How can I fix this? How can I be better? How can I do more? We will never find peace and hope until we repent and, and trust in Christ. Thirdly, trust God's Word. It contains all that we need to know of God. It is the beacon of truth. It is a light for our path and a hope in the dark. And fourthly, believe in the real Christ. Don't fall into the trap of creating your own God. That's idolatry. Making a Savior that you like better. One who's like you. we got to believe in God the Son, the real God the Son. Next, uh, I want to mention one more group that does not believe. And that's those yet to be saved. We must understand that we have a mission field surrounding us at all times and we must share the gospel with them. It's the power of God unto salvation. They need Christ. We must present him to them. We must call them to repentance and trust in him. We must seek to help the unbeliever. The last point that I think we should make is very important and it's an essential application. As we read, many of these people wouldn't be definite in their belief in Christ because they feared the Jews. We face a large group within the church and outside the church that hate us because of our stand on a biblical Christ on historic Christianity. And some would say we, we should not call out names or stir the pot. We need to go along and get along. Well, I believe in kindness and respect, for sure, but we must stand for truth. We cannot compromise truth for unity, period. So I leave you with the words of Christ. Matthew 10, 
34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be of their own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. Christ didn't come to unite everybody under a banner of happiness and joy. It says he came to bring a sword. And I think that we see that in our in our in our own lives at times when we take a stand for Christ and then when we see people who uh don't want to hang out with us no more. But I say this, take up your cross. Don't cave. Don't fear man. Do what God has asked us to do in his word. Follow the biblical Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and all that it has shown us. Help us to apply this to our lives. God, to, to rely on you, to trust in the biblical Christ, to love the biblical Christ, to find peace in him alone and know that his truth is the only truth that matters. God, we thank you. God, help us to to, to, to share that gospel with those who do not know you. God, if there be any who don't know you, God, give us the strength to be a witness to them, to share the gospel, and to hope to see lives changed and hearts, hearts made new. Sinner, you must turn to Christ. He is your only hope. Run to him for the salvation of your souls. In Christ's name.